When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Knife Talk is sponsored by Even Heat, the manufacturer of the finest knife heat treat ovens available. Find your next heat treat oven at evenheat-kiln.com. So welcome to another episode of Knife Talk. Now, I say this every episode, but this one really is a special one because I'm changing things up. So rather than just an interview with a maker, which I've done, you know, for the last what, few dozen shows, each show is now going to have a different subject to tackle. So the first of these new shows is all about business, the business of making knives. And, you know, I've got one, not just one, but I've got two guests this week. So I've got the great Mareku Malmasi of Malmasi Fire Arts and the, and the equally excellent Jeff Fader from Fader Knives. So welcome to the show, guys. I'm with you. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I'm in there, baby. Come on, let's go. Let's go. Let's so, so for those who haven't heard of these guys before, I'm sure you have. They've both been on the show before. So Mareku's been on. I think Jeff's been on twice. And to be honest with you, he probably doesn't need a microphone. You can probably hear him from your shop anyway. <laughs> Total outrage. That, that's, that's offensive. <laughs> so, so knife making is a business. I mean, first up, I've got to say how much respect for, for every knife maker out there who's making money, who's paying the bills, and, you know, paying for their family with the knives that they make. It's not easy. So huge respect to all those makers slogging away. I've got some questions from listeners of the show. Um, but I thought we'd start with some sort of really basic topics to start with. So for anybody who's just getting into making knives, there's going to be some setup costs. So, so what do you think, guys, for you know a setup? What's the minimum setup you think you get away with? Minimum setup. Well, it depends on what you're what you're trying to do. Now, obviously, yeah. you, know, you have two different ways to go. You could be, uh, you know, if you wanted to forge your knives, you got to deal with getting a forge and an anvil and some hammers. And then you should, you know, but if you want to do stock removal, you don't really need the anvils and the hammers and the forges. You kind of, but you, I don't know, you, but you might need a forge. Let's, let's just do them both. All right. All right. Let's start, all right. Let's start with not forging. Okay. I, I always actually encourage people to start by doing stock removal myself um, because I think that um, how well the gr- blade is ground is more important than if it's forged or not. Hmm. And so I think for a basic, shop setup for stock removal you, you need a grinder and if you're doing your own heat treat you need somehow to do a heat treating uh, ideally out of a, a controlled uh, temperature controlled kiln uh a drill press is pretty helpful you could use a drill regular i mean drill. yeah you could use a hand drill. The, the most the most of, there's a few important parts you you have you need something to remove the material and you need something to heat treat the steel so yeah. And and so really, what it comes down to is is what your game plan is. And I think that I think that a lot of times, uh, most of the people who I talk to who start in, they get a small pro, a small forge. They're getting like a little grinder, and then they're they're using the forge which which to to heat treat. And what that obviously does is it, it limits you in regards to how much you can uh, heat treat. Mm-hmm. So I mean, I think that I think that. You know, we've said this a million times on this show, but like if you if you watch guys like Aaron Goff or Michael Trolsky, they do a lot of videos on the bare minimum of what you need in order to make a knife. 
you know, a lot of those guys are using files to use to take the stock removal, they to stock removal their knives. Mm-hmm. I think that that's the bare minimum is, is you know, you know, you need a steel file and you need a goddamn, uh, pardon me, you need a, uh, a forge. Yeah, I think it's, it's invest so. in time, isn't it? You know, you can invest in the tools. I mean, when I started, I had one of those really shitty one by 30 grinders, which you right. know, I've seen people make amazing. Walter Sorrell still uses one of them occasionally, you know, and he makes great stuff. But it's invest in time, isn't it? You know, you just got to put the time there and say, this isn't going to be easy. This isn't going to be something I can learn in a month. I need to invest a bit of time in this. And over the years, I'll get better. Well, that's the other thing. The other thing is, is this idea of business. It's, it's thinking about short-term plans and long-term plans and how you can become proficient in making knives to the point where somebody wants to buy your knife, but then decide, where am I going from here? What's the game plan? What's the long-term game plan? Um, and then the idea is, obviously, if you start to enjoy it, you start to invest in materials and, and, and tools that will make your make knife making more efficient and once you become a little bit more the more efficient you become the more profitable you become yeah i have nothing to add that's pretty good okay (laughs) i mean we've had a good question from dh customs it's probably a good time for this so we're talking about our first knives so he's asking how much we sold our first knife for which which is a bit strange. I mean, in my case, my first knives, they were given us gifts for family and friends. And it took me a while to be happy enough with the quality of my knives, really, before I was selling them. And I think I, even then it was too soon. You know, I cringed looking back at those first knives. So what about you guys? I gave my first 15 away. Hmm. And then um, I started to, I actually, I got commissioned to make a chef's knife, which I had never made before. And then I went, I basically charge the price to heat treat and get them done so i i got the, the first two to get them heat treated uh stainless steel i pretty much just paid the cost of the materials and i did cost but it, it's a it's, it's a tough spot hmm. with them i don't know what yeah do so uh my first knives actually i gave away to i think at least the first three or four knives um but i never i never actually like built an entire knife until I'd already been kind of knife making or doing knife aspects of knife making uh, for like three years already. Wow. Yeah. So I was already That's doing surprising. stuff for about three years uh, before I made my first knife. Uh, and like I said, it was a gift to my brother. But the first knife I ever actually sold, uh, it was something like twelve or thirteen hundred dollars. Uh, part of that comes from the pedigree that I kind of have going for me on my resume working uh, under Bob Kramer for three years. And then at the time I was working out of David Lish's school and he has a strong reputation in the game. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, that knife was actually even, that was, a, that was the wholesale price. Um, Cause it went to a retailer to then turn around and flip the knife essentially. Mm, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. So the answer is it can vary massively, can't it? You know, it depends how much it- experience you're putting into it. I think the answer is you should charge twelve hundred dollars. Answer: Charge twelve hundred dollars for your oh. first night. Yeah, it's a good way to start. <laughs> That's it. That's the greatest way to start. <laughs> we another great question actually, which is very much linked. So Marlborough Handcraft asks, um, "How do you figure out your pricing? Do you just pick a, fi- a figure from thin air, or do you work out your cost of materials and the time taken, or for the experience that you've gained? How, how would you work out that pricing?" I'll start this one off because uh, it kind of picks up where I, I just left off. Mm. But essentially, I always encourage people to reach out to retailers to help 
uh, especially if at least if they're if they're doing culinary knives, a lot of people are starting to retail culinary knives a lot more, and they have especially a retailer has kind of a sense for the market based on what the work looks like, how well known is the person that they can they that's kind of their job is to put prices on things, hmm. um, and so I I try to advise people, especially if they're doing solid work, to start reaching out to retailers and see. And just more than anything, especially if they're just starting, it's an opportunity, one, get kind of get an idea of their pricing. But two, it also, uh, you know, selling through retailers essentially is an advertising opportunity. Hmm. And so it also allows them to then reach out to an entire group of people that you might not already be connected to or who have no idea who you are. So I think it's a double plus there. But otherwise, I guess kind of just look around on Instagram or or on websites and stuff, but it's hard to tell because there there are uh, commercial retailers who are selling commercially made knives that look through internet photographs like they're the same quality, but you know handmade versus commercial made are two different worlds, as, as as any custom knife maker would be able to tell you, and it's just it's hard to tell just by pictures alone. I think going to shows is probably a good another good idea. But I don't know. What do you think, Jeff? I, you know, it's funny because I, I have a totally different background. You know, I started out as a sculptor. So when I was pricing out sculpture, which is super hard to figure out, you know, you're figuring out, you're figuring out your material costs, you're figuring out your labor. Which, when in the knife game, you got to really kind of throw the labor out the window sometimes, and you have to kind of float with regards to what you think you can get, but also. Where the market bears. When I price my knives, I would rather personally, and this is this is my business model, is I would rather be attainable to the average non-collecting customer. Mm-hmm. So I kind of look at what other people are pricing, and I try to keep. I mean, you know, my chef knives are around five hundred bucks, and I and I like that because I like the fact that I would rather keep the ball rolling for myself and the company than to. You know, and then to use to to go, you know, to price myself in a position that's difficult. My personal opinion, and and I, you know, everybody's different. Like Mareko's business model is different than my business model, mm. and it really is about what your what your goal is. You know, if 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 you if you if you're learning how to make knives and you really want to see where you're at, that's one thing. But if you're looking to say, you know. When I, all right, here's an example. I used to make these giant fishing lure sculptures, and they got to the point where they became more business because I could have a regular, an idea of the cost. The cost wasn't – it wasn't going crazy. It was usually based on size, and I can just say, all right, well, that one's going to be 350 that one's going to be 750 based on the size and the amount of work. So I, I think that you have to kind of look at what other people are doing, but also decide what you're trying to do. Do you want to sell – You know, are you just going to hold out for a big sale or – you want to just keep the ball rolling and keep people, your friends and your family, who might not be able to afford a super expensive knife. Do you want to keep them? You know, do you want to be able to make it affordable? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. It, it's a tough spot. It's a tough spot. I think that's Jesse Killian, Marlboro Knife. I'm not 100 percent sure, but Jesse, I'm with you. <laughs> <laughs> so it's interesting that you, you say business models because I think the three of us have very different business models. So I mean, you just mentioned yours, um, Chef Knife, around about the five hundred dollars. Um, mine is cheaper again. Um, and the way I'm trying to have a sort of the business model, I suppose, is to have stock. 
So I want a sort of repeatable knife that I can just make over and over again to have stock of. It's almost a product business, you know? And obviously right. Mareko's is very different, but Mareko's is very custom with custom one-off pieces. Yeah. Um, but I'm starting to see a lot more business models now, especially on Instagram, people auctioning and, you know, all these different these, these crazy bidding systems they're having on Instagram now. What are your thoughts on them? You know, I... I've said this in the past too. I, you got to do whatever it takes, and mm. I, I think that I, if somebody somebody's trying to figure out ways in which to sell on Instagram, I think it's important. I think that I think it's important to have long term plans and short term plans. Yeah. So when I was starting out, I really, I really, the Instagram I was doing mostly with sculpture, and then I started doing the knives. And I noticed that based on the hashtags that I was doing, I was getting more interest. Right. I, I think that. When you're looking at you're looking at your business model, you really have to think about what where you want to go down the line. And when I was starting out, I was you know I was getting when I I was getting messages and I was getting orders on Instagram and whatever. And then it got to the point where I said to myself, I, I had been an artist for 20 plus years. I've been you know dealing with galleries. I've been dealing with you know selling my work on my own. But I really felt like in order for me to make this a business, I really needed someone who could. Uh, accentuate my weaknesses. And my, one of my weaknesses was being a business person. I, I was a sculptor for, for years. And the funny thing about sculptors are, you know, when you go to an art school, there's not one student's parents who are proud, you know, are excited and relieved that they're an artist. You know why? Because that's, <laughs> nice. they've resigned to the fact that they're terrible at business. You know, it's you the struggling it, artist, isn't it? Yeah. If you're going to be an artist, you are saying, are you holding up your hand and say, I state your name. I'm a terrible business person. That's why they have galleries. That's why they have dealers. That's why they have brokers. Yeah. So you actually, so and I'm getting a little off topic, but oh, we're, that's where we are. So what happens is, is, you know, I, I wanted to find someone who could help me deal with the business, but also propel this company that I really believe in. So I really kind of, you know, I offered the I offered a partnership to a good friend of mine who I'd worked closely with, and it's been a great decision. In regards to these little Instagram things, I think it's awesome. I think you got to do whatever it takes. I think the the twenty dollars for to put your money in. I think it you, you got to be creative, and you have to figure out ways in which you can make it happen. And and, and if and if it works for you, it's great short term. I'm not sure that it's great long term, but that's a decision I've talked to you. I'm with you. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. Jeez. Uh, so my take, uh, yeah, we all have different business models and kind of just to cover mine. Essentially, I started out selling through retailers um, because I basically had no brand. I, nobody knew who the fuck I was. Uh, nobody knew really like the quality of the work and all that stuff. So I kind of leaned pretty heavily on a retailer to stand up for me, essentially like a gallery, like an art gallery dealer yeah. or an art dealer. I don't know. You know what those people are called. Right. You got but it. But essentially, uh, and then, but the goal ultimately was to get to the point to where I could make those sales directly uh, because uh, working through a retailer, they do take uh, anywhere from, you know, 15 to 60% um, of, a, of a sale, which can be pretty tough, especially if you're trying to do this full time. And so you, you know, essentially you let that relationship continue to go until you can do it yourself, until you're sustainable on your own. At least from my perspective, that's how I, I approached it. And you got something to add? Well, I was just going to talk about, you know, the retail thing in Instagram is very interesting because nowadays I, I personally have negative feelings towards the gallery people 
that I was involved with when mm. I was an artist. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that I didn't feel like I was in control of my own destiny. Sure. I think that for some people, I think that being in a retail store is difficult because, you know, if you, if you go down to a few retail stores, really high-end ones, you know, when somebody's coming into the retail store, they're not, they're, a lot of times their game plan is to, to not buy, say, I'm going to go down and buy one of Mareko's knives at, you know, whatever, J.B. Prince. A lot of times you're going to find people who are, um, what do I, you know, they're walking in off the street and they're looking around. They're like, oh, it's going to be hard to find a street business or, or just like off the street business for something that's very expensive. And I, I always felt like, and I have had my knives in stores and not expensive ones, but every time I go down there, I'm just like, eh, they're, they're in there. And but it, it, you have to find, I think that with Instagram, you have the opportunity to have a little bit more control over your, um, over your business. And what I, what I really wanted to say was, I think that nowadays with Instagram people, I think that there's a lot of people who are in the business of making knives who are focusing not on their demographic. And, and, and one thing that interests me is I think that you need to target who your audience is. And instead of hashtagging for other knife makers, I think you need to be focusing on who your, who your demographic is and then target towards them. Does that make sense? Yeah, completely, completely. And that actually ties in with the question we've had from J.R. Palm. Um, and he asked, how do you grow your Instagram following as a bladesmith? And I was going to say exactly what you just said, really, about I've struggled with getting lots of followers who are, and it may have something to do with this podcast, but lo- lots of my followers are bladesmiths or knife makers. Right. And obviously, they're not going to be my customer, you know? So, right. I, so I'm struggling to reach out to the to the correct audience. And well, it's, yeah, it's bizarre. So, you know, I, I have, you know, a, a certain amount of sort of followers, if you like. Um, and most of them seem to come from the podcast. So, you know, for example, I'd hashtag Simplecast, which is the program I use for the podcast. And I'll get maybe a few thousand people just because they're into podcasts, not necessarily into knives and not right. necessarily into, you know, into cooking, which is the kind of people I want looking at my stuff. So, yeah, th- I think that's the real question. How do you get the right followers? Well, one thing is, you know, sorry for dominating, but that's, you know, I have, I have some sort of mental illness. I, I think that a lot of times when people use hashtags, I think that what I started to do is I really started focusing on, on my immediate area. I'm from Westchester, New York. I'm from the Hudson Valley. And what happened was I tried to use very, very simple hashtags. And I think that what a lot of knife makers do is they, they use these hashtags that might not necessarily be something that someone actually is going to look up. You, so you, you, mm. if you do Michigan knife maker yum hashtag Michigan knife maker yum, there's going to be like two people looking at that hashtag, you know. But if you're from Westchester, New York, and you write Westchester, I usually do. And you can look at my hashtags. I go simple. I go handmade, handcraft. Uh, hashtag New York. Hashtag Westchester. Hashtag Hudson Valley. And what happens is, is a lot of times if you're just focusing on people in your immediate area. There's a lot of people who are very interested in what we do. When I say we, I'm talking to everybody listening to this podcast. So if you can kind of go local, so to speak, you're going to attract more people. That's how I got on the cover of that magazine, Edible Hudson. That's how I got involved with Westchester Magazine. I was really trying to focus myself locally and not just with these crazy hashtags of like yum with 10 Ys. You know, it was more (laughs) along the lines of like, you know, knife knives, chef, chef knives. I'm, I'm, 
you have to think about the customer that you're the customer that you're who's buying your knives, or it really it doesn't really matter what you're selling, hammers, axes, whatever, you have to think about what they're looking for. Uh, and part of that is not going crazy, because that's the thing, is when, when you're attracting other knife makers, it's great to have compliments and great to have likes, and this is an awesome community, but the guys in the hashtag knife community aren't necessarily gonna be your long-term customers, and that's who you're looking for. You need to kind of target your, you know, if you're making chef knives, you make sure you have hashtag culinary, hashtag food. Ha you know, you got to go very, very simple. And usually what will happen is someone will, will sub on to you. But I'm a huge fan of the local thing. Sorry. Yeah, I think so. To piggyback that a little bit, I would say that uh, Jeff's right on, really. Because as human beings, we are very tribal in our mindset. And so we are always, I feel like we're always looking for somebody to kind of be our avatar to represent us into what are, I mean, that's why people love sports, right? They get to, they, that, that team represents who they are. So you're looking to figure out who is going to be your teammates, who's going to be your supporters, who are going to be your biggest fans. And that's going to start with your local community because who else is going to support you and say, fuck yeah, this guy's a badass. He's making knives. He's the only one in the community doing this. They're going to put you in a local newspaper. That's going to get you on local radio. That's going to get you into the, the, whatever the next big city over is and so on so far. Um, I, when it comes to followers myself, I don't think it's necessarily the greatest metric by which to judge how well you're doing or how yeah, successful. Definitely. Good yeah. Good call. And you know, I have, I just recently hit like 52.4, thousand followers and a lot of people might hear that and go holy fucking shit that's a lot of people but the reality is that doesn't necessarily translate into sales that's those are but those are all people who are interested in what i'm doing uh who support just through eyeballs and help keep me relevant especially through instagram and how uh and how instagram uh does their algorithms and decides what's more important to see and whatnot and also it kind of lends some validation like if somebody's discovering me for the first time and they see that I have 52.4 thousand followers, they're like, oh shit, this guy must be doing something right. Yeah, yeah. When it comes to sales, it doesn't necessarily translate into anything. And those numbers, a big part of them, have come from other people who I've built knives for, uh, put me on blast, and but they have like 3 million followers or something like that. And, but again, the follower number doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to make a lot of money, make a lot of sales. But, but it does translate to having more opportunities. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Yeah. And when it comes to numbers, I mean, I think, Jeff, you're at 8,000, 9,000? I don't Somewhere yeah, in there. I'm not, a, I'm not a penny pincher. I don't, I, it, yeah. <laughs> so like so ba if you base it based on followers, uh, people might see Jeff and say, uh, he doesn't even have 10,000 followers. What the fuck's his problem? But this guy's been uh, on all kinds of stuff. He's been featured in magazines. He's working with uh, some of the top chefs in the country doing these awesome collaborations. Hmm. And he's got all the business he wants. He's got the right followers. He's got the right followers, I think. I don't know. I, I guess I won't speak for him. But I, I appreciate it. Look, look, I think that it gets to the point where I think that more importantly, it's more about what you're doing with your Instagram page. And I'm going to say this is one of the – I think that – Having the correct followers, I'm not the correct followers, the correct hashtags, I think it's just super important. And, and really targeting the people who are buying your knives. If you make hunting knives, you probably want to have hunting 
hashtags. If you're, if you're making bushcraft knives, you but go simple. Don't go like hashtag bushcraft knife made on 14th Street. You know, it's just like you know, mm, yeah. don't go The other thing is, is I think that when you're when people are looking at your Instagram, I think that they're looking at the entire page, the whole the whole thumbnail. And what I personally try to do is I try to make sure that every single time I do a different picture, <clears throat> I'm really focusing it on the whole thing as the thumbnail. So you can see, you know, when you're looking at it, I have different backgrounds every time. The lighting is always different. I have different, I'm in different positions. I do not do the hand pictures. We're going to talk about the hand pictures because we're going to, somebody's going to get, somebody's going to get the with those so nails, you don't want to be people, doing hand pictures. <laughs> there's going to be some people who are about to get their feelings hurt, and I'm just that's just going to be the way it is. So, But I think that it's very important to kind of, and I hate to say it, but you have to curate your page to a certain degree. So people are like, huh, this is a little bit different. You, you really have to figure out ways in which to kind of set yourself apart in regards to, um, to set yourself apart in regards to everybody else. In regards to the hand picture. I think that, and I'm saying this because I'm saying this with peace and love. But also, you know, let's let's get, let's get this together, knife community. There's only two people I would never tell to stop doing the knife hand pictures. That's Greg Sims and Nick Anger. They can do whatever they want. But I'm telling you this: if you have your hand outstretched with a knife, with the heel edge of the knife in your palm, and your fingers are outstretched like a crazed person, that <laughs> is not going to sell knives. There's no way. Not gonna happen. It's ridiculous. I don't even understand what that happened. That came from who holds a knife with the blade in their palm. Mm. All right. Yeah. Well, that's, you know. and none of us are gonna have the best looking hands either, are we? They're all gonna be cut, cut to bits. You got yeah. shitty hands. Come on, yeah. don't tell the truth. Nobody wants to see your hands. <laughs> I'm saying no peace, love. Nobody wants to see your hands. Nobody wants to see any of your hands, except for <laughs> Nick Anger and Greg Sims. You can do whatever you want. I'm with you. So so let's go on to the sort of nitty-gritty because you can make the world's best knives and you can have the world's best Instagram page, but without a customer, you don't have a business. So the, the actual communicating with the customer, taking orders and the, and the sort of admin work. So Jeff's already mentioned that he's got a partner. Does Do you do that work, Jeff, or does your partner do that? Well, or, you know, how, well, how does that work for you? Well, one thing is, is when I first started doing the, the business hmm. – I, I, did a, I took a lot from when I was making sculpture. And what I used to do was I would do these progress reports on sculpture because I'd get orders and then these people would be wondering where their sculpture is. So if I send these progress pictures, a lot of times people who are buying sculpture or, or buying knives don't really know what goes into making a knife. So what I try to do is I try to do these updates. And the update, what the updates would do would be explain what's going on, but also it would bide me some time because nobody wants that email, hey, what's going on? Where's my knife? Nobody wants that. What people want is customer service. And part of customer service is the fact that you're remembering who they are. But you don't need to, you don't, you, you want to, you want to be ahead of your customers where you are sending them updates without having to, as, not reflexively or as a response. You want them to get open their emails. Oh, here's a message from so-and-so. Oh, I'm, I, oh, I didn't realize, I forgot. Oh, this is awesome. You people want to be remembered, and that part of that is customer service. And, and my, my partner Tony and I are really customer service is very very important to us. And I think that it's one of those things. You know, first part of custom knives is custom er, not customer, but custom. And I, and I think it's I think it's super important. And that's a huge part of of our business is that kind of customer service. 
Well, I think custom custom is short for customer design or customer whatever. Like you're, the purpose of it is to serve an individual who has an idea. Right. And um, I, I have to be honest, I, I've been doing it on my own pretty much since I started. My wife helps from time to time, uh, with, especially with answering emails uh, and especially like first contact just to help give people like the basic idea about cost and timeline and stuff like that. But when it comes down to the nitty gritty about the, you know, the different details that go into building a knife, um, that's all me and, and, you know, sending them photos of progress and stuff like that. And I've, I've actually taken a page out of, out of Jeff's book, uh, cause I think he's 100% right about the customer service aspect. You are there to serve people. That's what I actually, that's one of the things I enjoy the most about this, this craft is that, working with people to, to help other folks. But part of that is taking care of them as an individual and that it is helping them feel remembered, helping them feel like they're being taken care of. And, and yeah, I've definitely take, like I said, taken a page out of his book and started, I have a, a whole worksheet and everything. And I, I check in with them from time to time. I think that, I think that cut part of customer service isn't necessarily just the concept of serving someone, but it's more along the lines of giving them a good experience. Mm-hmm. And I think that one thing is that, you know, you, you see, I know some really awesome bladesmiths who have this idea, not an idea, but their whole thing is I make what I make and you can buy what I make. And I think that that works for a lot of guys. But when you're starting out, I think that it's uh, it's not the way to, you know, express express this business this of growth. If you're turning people down for what reason or another, you have to be aware that if you just do a little bit of, I'm not saying sell out or anything. I'm saying is you, you want to give somebody something they want, that they feel that they have some degree of control over, or you want to give them something that they feel like they have, it's special to them. So whether it be getting an email and here's what I'm doing, or here's what I'm doing, or, or can, you know, what colors do you like for your liners? Or it's this, it's giving someone an experience that a lot of times is a lot different than you know, the idea you're giving this kind of personal connection. And I think that especially with the decline of customer service in general, I think it's very refreshing, especially as a, you know, a craftsperson to be able to give someone a view into what you're doing, whether it be a work in progress picture or give them some options or just respond to some questions or kind of allow them to come to your shop and take a look at your, you know, these are little things that you don't think mean a lot, but they, it makes, it makes a huge difference between, somebody buys one of your knives once or somebody who's like, I'm going to do this again, or I'm going to gift this experience to somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I think we're all storytellers really, aren't we? You know, we're all using these tools to gain customers. We're telling the story of what we do. And if we invite them into the story, they feel part of it. Um, they know exactly where they are in the, you know, in, in the build, if you like as well. And it's just, yeah, opening up our doors, not, you know, metaphorically, but just, so they know exactly what's going on. They're part of the story. This is also this is also a different than it. Like we were in the fly swatter business, we wouldn't be having this conversation. You know, we have we have the we have making knives is. I we used to call it the bloodlust. I'd have guys come into my shop and they'd pick up this knife, and you could see the the, cha- the change in their face. So there's we we call it the bloodlust. This is an exciting experience, and people are fascinated by it. Hmm. And to allow them in and to kind of like give them, you know, access to what you're doing goes way farther than you realize. Well, something that you hit on earlier was making it a special experience for them. I've, I've been listening to a lot of TED Talks lately while uh, I'm working away. And one of the ones I listened to recently was talking about uh, 
why people work and all this kind of other stuff. But part of what he was describing was the IKEA effect. And the, the concept basically is we like our IKEA furniture more, even though it's a pain in the ass to put together because you can't read the instructions and the instructions aren't necessarily the greatest. Right. By the time you're done with it, you love that fucking thing because you put a little bit of time and yeah. energy into that. And so by providing a great experience and that's a very special experience like just talking about, you're allowing that person to, to have uh, to experience a little bit of that IKEA effect through something that's very special through a, a custom built handmade knife. And uh, I, yeah, so I think making it a special experience really is uh, important. It is, aspect. I, you know, even just the idea, even this, the idea, I know that uh, a friend of mine was working with another uh, knife maker was working with another knife maker and then the other knife maker uh, bailed or just dodged, dodged emails. The difference between dodging emails and being ahead of people is huge. And I say this, this is something I say to my daughter all the time in regards to communication and conversation in general, is you have to see conversation and communication like a combination lock. If you get the combination right, you're really kind of opening the lock to what you need. But if you're fighting it all the time, it, the lock's never going to open. So if, if, you're, if you're, it's just the difference between a little bit of courtesy and just not answering the emails and or being brusque or being kind of it's a it's a, just a monumental experience change like good service i used to work for charlie palmer in this he's a restaurateur and he used to say to me the difference between an excellent restaurant and a mediocre restaurant can be the difference between customer service if you have a really great restaurant but the service sucks mm. people might not go back but if you have a good mediocre restaurant and the service is unbelievable you're going to get repeat business. And I'm not saying fuck the knives and do good, good customer service, but a little bit of extra goes a lot farther than you realize. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, okay. So let's talk about, I mean, we talked briefly about this offline, which is that sort of artist versus business mindset, you know? So let's say you have a customer who maybe makes a request for something that you think maybe isn't quite right or it wouldn't, it would just wouldn't fit well, you know? How would you handle that? Because the artist side is thinking, well, no, that's, it's not going to be good. But the business side is thinking, hey, it's an order. How, how well, would you handle a customer like that? Want to take this one? Sure, I'll start this well, one off. I, I've definitely had some odd requests in the past. Uh, and ultimately, I think of it, it as an opportunity to be challenged. Uh, but really, depending on what it is, uh, because especially, I, you know, it's still a young business for me. I've been doing this for five years. Um, I look at it as in it, when I start getting an odd request, I, I think to myself, okay, if this person bails out, do I, and I finish this knife, can I still sell this? And that's just purely coming from the business side of things. Mm -hmm. If I don't think, and if, if you can't afford to take that hit, I wouldn't take the order. Yeah. But if you can't, and then you, it's shits and giggles, whatever, like have fun, do something funny. If the person bails, all right, you got a, a funny gift to give to somebody or something like that. But I, 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 I tend to believe that, you know, the funny thing is, is starting out as an artist, like I really don't really consider myself an artist. And I don't really consider this being an art anyway, but that's, that's for another topic of debate. Um, I think that, I think that for me, I enjoy getting strange requests because a lot of, or it's not even strange, just like saying something I wouldn't have thought of. Like, you know, because what happens is you end up trying new things that you might not necessarily want to do, but you'll learn something. Like I recently got asked to do a knife. And the guy was a big uh, Pink Floyd fan. And he wanted to know if I could make a knife that looked like the dark side of the moon. Well, I don't really, I mean, I, have, I get 
Pink Floyd when it comes on classic radio, but I ain't buying any albums. Mm. So what happened was, was I designed a knife with like the, you know, one stripe on one side was white. And then the other stripes were the descending order of, you know, the, the album. So it looked like it and it, and it turned out great. And, and, and it was one of those things where I wasn't, I'm not, you know, in the Pink Floyd business, but it was one of those things that I learned something that I appreciated. And it was a very, it was a, it was a great opportunity to, to try something new. When you, you know, that's the thing is when I was a sculptor, I was taking my sculpture and putting it in galleries, but it necessarily buy, people weren't just buying the sculptures. They, I was getting commissioned. Hmm. So when you're getting commissioned, you end up doing something that you wouldn't normally do, but you're just like, I'm in the, you know, this is a business, so I'll make you whatever you want. So I would make these things that I didn't necessarily, would, wouldn't have made on my own, but it was a great opportunity to kind of like stretch, you know, figure out a way that I can make something that they want within the style of what I do. Hmm. Okay. And, okay. And I think it's important to say no all the time. When you say, say no enough, people stop asking. That's the biggest problem. Well, and I, just to piggyback again off Jeff, uh, which is probably going to be the rest of the show. Oh, stop it. So I'm keeping my, I'm keeping my mask. No, no, no. No, to piggyback, I would say I, I've actually learned, I have actually learned a lot by uh, customers making off requests from yeah. things that I wouldn't normally attempt or try or a pattern style or working with a certain kind of handle material or doing different kind of construction stuff, excuse me, construction styles. Um, I don't know. It's, there, there is a huge opportunity for challenges uh, and learning through taking customers. I actually don't know if I've ever actually taken an order and then turned around, changed it or said no or anything. Uh, when it's been something like, I want skulls and rubies encrusted in the hand. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm not the guy. For but you. I mean, that's the thing. It, it, it has to be within the confines of what you do. You know, if, if it obviously, you know, if you, you know, I, I, I turn away. You know, certain somebody wants a specific steel that I don't work with. I say, well, I don't really work with that. But here's what I have that's very yeah. comparable. I think that there's. I think that when somebody's looking for a knife from you, they're looking for your brand and your style. Mm -hmm. Now, once in a while, you'll get somebody like I. Uh, you'll get somebody who will say. I want this, and then I want I want you to change this handle, and I want this tip, and I want this size, and I want this and this. So it's like going to a restaurant and saying, hey, I'm looking at the menu and saying, hey, I'd like this steak, but I want the side from this, and I want the app from this, and then you, and then and you're then writing your own menu. Yeah, you're writing your own dish. So sometimes you just either have to say, or maybe just it doesn't matter to me, but at the same time, it's like you gotta I you gotta take a little bit of the passion out of it. You, you gotta kind of be, and I got, I got that from Greg Sims. Greg Sims and I were having conversation and we were talking about the idea of the artist versus the business person and i think that it very it's very important that you make that decision on what you're trying to do if you want to if you're not trying to be in business and you're just making your knives and you're not supporting yourself on your knives then you have that ability to say no i'm not going to do that because of my own personal opinions but if you're in the business of being in business you know it's nice to be able to say I can do what you want. I can make something similar to what you want. It's going to be within the vein of what I do. And I think I can find something that can make a, a, a good, happy medium. Yeah. But I think it's important. You yeah. have to make the decision if you're an artist or in business. Well, I, one last thing. I think just 99% uh, of my no's, I think, have definitely come from people saying, I want a so-and-so other knife maker's style knife. Can you make that? And I say, no, you should probably get a hold of them, and they'll make it for I've you. I've gotten that. And so that's probably the thing I say no to the most. And you know what I say? I'll make your knife like that guy, but it's going to look a lot more like my knife. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, 
I'll, That's I'll the use thing. the grinder like, in his yeah. dress. Did, did, they, did they pay the deposit? <laughs> yeah, sure. I'll make you a knife just like his. I was going to show up just like mine, but <laughs> you can tell people it looks just like his. <laughs> You know, I think I think a lot of the time it's it's a way to sort of, I mean, without trying to feel superior over a customer, but it's sometimes a way to educate them because they've come to you because they want, you know, they want a good knife. So to give them the best knife that they possibly can, sometimes you have to say, well, no, you know, that handle material wouldn't work well in a kitchen, you know, and they, they may say, oh, actually, you're right, you know, and we, we'll, we'll go with your. That's key to this. That's key to what we're doing. I mean, that's that's super key. It's not just like, you know. I need a turquoise handle with like, you know, some, what, a, like a giraffe bone, you know, and if you don't work with that stuff, you know, if you don't work with that, you don't work with that giraffe bone, then you, what, are you, what are you doing? You can't, you can't give, if you don't know about the giraffe bone, you, you shouldn't be fucking with it. I, I prefer boar. Well, I'm just saying it's Wild important boar. to educate somebody and, and to be able to say, you know, people say, look, I don't, I don't, I don't do that giraffe bone. Yeah. Here's what I got. Well, that giraffe bone's not going to work in this situation. Hashtag Jeff doesn't do the giraffe bone. That that's the title for the show. That one. Oh no! Oh no! That's terrible. All right. Well, I've stepped into that one. So I've got a few more questions. So I've got LB Bladeworks. Um, they've asked, "How do you improve your skills? Do you do you nail the classics before building on building on them, or you just jump straight in with your own with your own designs?" I'll, I'll start. So I've been doing this, doing knife making now actually for 10 years total, or sorry, 10 years, I'm talking out my ass, eight years total, three years with Bob Kramer, and then five years, five years actually like right now uh, on my own. And I think the key to continued education is striving for an ever, at least for me, from my perspective, is striving to do the different processes better every time. Actually, I showed up here with Jeff and I was like, I think I just found out a new way to sharpen knives. It's like, shouldn't you have figured out how to sharpen knives a long time ago? <laughs> I didn't know. He didn't say that. I didn't say that's, that. That's my own hmm. uh, internal dialogue. But, I, you know, I've been stone sharpening. I know how to sharpen on a machine and stuff like that. But I came up with a new way that makes it dummy proof because I'm a fucking dummy. Stop it. And so I'm constantly trying to figure out how to make my process idiot proof. Yeah. Uh, as well as constantly trying to fig figure out different ways to become more efficient, especially when it comes to uh, things that just take time, like handle sculpting. Like my handles can be incredibly uh, like intricate when it comes to actual contouring and stuff, and it just it takes a lot of fucking time. Yes, I spent literally, I usually spend at least a whole six to eight hour day sculpting one handle, yeah. and it's it's a lot of fucking time. And I'm trying to become more and more efficient. And so it's weird because some days it'll take me like two, three hours. Other days it takes six hours. And I don't know. But I think, long story short, it's just constantly looking for opportunities to become more efficient. And that's just, and essentially you're just reevaluating your process nonstop, at least for me. It's also, it's also an evolution because when I was making sculpture, when you talk to other sculptors or painters, you know, their style and your, your, the way your work evolves, it, it, little things kind of make evolution happen to the point where, you know, you, you, you actually see a very sincere improvement on your design. And, and what I tried to do is when I was making knives, and I was constantly trying to make little improvements, little steps, or I would make big, you know, I'd make some steps. And there's a, uh, there, if you look at my old knives versus my new knives, there is an evolution. There's a, you still see that a lot of similarities, 
But it's a very slow, it was a very slow evolution that I kind of liked. Uh, I think it's important to have that like sincere evolution because you're trying to build upon what you're doing. We're not reinventing the wheel here. Knives are not, if you're, no one's, no, it's really hard to. <laughs> it's no, what I mean, fucking duo. Yeah. No, what I mean, knives are one of those things that's like, there's nothing, you know, it's been, it's not an original concept. Right. And we're, we're trying to make our take on what a knife is or what our version of a knife can be. And, and I think that when you start to um, kind of make sl- subtle evolutions, you start to, your knives start to have that kind of trademark of what they look like and they look like your knife. Mm-hmm. And I think that that helps in regards to kind of creating who you are because it isn't just buying a knife. It's buying you too. It's, it's, it's buying a Absolutely. whole package. It's, yeah. it's getting a piece of this person who makes knives and this is their knife. And you get to the point where when you look at, especially the knife makers, they get to the point where when they look at people's knives, they can kind of tell who's who. Yeah. So yeah. I think that having that, having that kind of evolution is is like a very very educational thing that really will help you. And make sure you put a harpoon clip on everything. <laughs> put a harpoon clip and a draft bone. You got me. You got it. You're all there. Get up on the draft bone, baby. You know what? I was watching a, a Forge and Fire last night. I couldn't sleep. It was way too hot. So first of all, I watched Bill Benke's, which was on last week, which was amazing. Bill exactly. Bank- he was amazing. It's great to see Bill winning that. He suckered me, that guy. I love Bill. You know, I, I sing his praise all the time. He suckered me. He sent me a message and he wrote, he wrote, hey, Jeff, if you, if you have TV, if you, if you have Forge and Fire, I'm on tonight. And then underneath he writes, don't laugh. So I turned <laughs> to my wife and I think to myself, Ah, I love Bill. Bill's the best. You know, he's such a great guy, forward thinking, super nice, couldn't be nicer. And I think he lost. And she's like, why do you say that? I'm like, well, he wrote, don't laugh. Next morning, he takes the cake, wins the whole thing. <laughs> Bill suckered me. I love Bill. Bill's yeah. the best. But I mentioned Fortune Fire because you just mentioned your harpoon clip, which is in your Cuban knife, isn't it? Um, but I was watching Mareko's first time that he was on. I was watched that last night. And he had this, this harpoon clip on a, it was like a Bowie knife, I think he was making. Yeah. Um, and I thought right. that, that's where Jeff got it. That's the Cuban knife. So I think the bones of the Cuban knife comes from Morocco. Well, let me tell you something. <laughs> let me tell you something. It might be the case. It might be the case. Here, I, the story of the Cuban knife was I was I'm a, I'm a friends with the great Carl Ruiz, mm. who's uh, on the Food Network. He's also on uh, he's on a podcast with Opie Radio. Uh, and he's really funny. He's a great guy. And he wanted he, he we were he, I saw him. On a live stream, and he said he wanted something sinister. He wanted a chef's knife that was sinister. So I was fooling around, and then all of a sudden, I'm like, well, what's sinister? I'm like, a harpoon clip. So it was one of those things that was like, it was like he was super psyched about it. And, you know, look, I make a joke. It's a harpoon. Put a harpoon clip. I want to make a spoon with a harpoon clip. <laughs> Be careful you know? with that one. Yeah, put it in your mouth, baby. Easy? Easy? Giraffe bone, baby. Come on. Come on, baby. Giraffe bone with the harpoon clip. Sorry. I think you two are pretty pumped for this um, event that you have this afternoon, don't you? Let's talk about it. Yeah, so yeah. T- tell, tell the people. I'm, obviously, it's going to be too late for them to, to turn up. Yeah, you're, uh, out. you're out. It's over. They're suckers. They're suckers. But, but tell the people what you're up to today. Uh, so, Jeff... And I are going to be cruising down to JB Prince Company, which is a uh, what, is it? what would you consider? JB Prince is a professional culinary store. It's an inc- it's where if you're a, if you're a cook or a chef in New York City or the surrounding area, 
and you need something like a crazy ring mold or some specific kind of knife, they have everything. And pretty, it's not pretty much everything but appliances. They have appliances. Like, oh, they do. Oh, yeah. They're, they, they're oh, the, they, like the small appliances. They got, if you want like some sort of like $9,000 ice cream machine, I'm sure they got it somewhere. <laughs> they started the tweezer craze. They got it all. Tim Musick started the tweezer craze, and that's a fact. <laughs> yeah. He's a CEO. But so we're, going there. we're going down there to hang out, talk knives, um, and just kind of hang out. Cool. Cool. I think I said that twice. Stay out. Well, Stay this, out. this show has been all about the business. So I'm going to let you guys go and take care of business. Have a great afternoon, and I shall speak to you very soon. Absolutely. Craig, thank you. Craig, thank you very much for this opportunity. I'm with you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.